This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, we're talking about the last survivors of the Atlantic slave trade with Dr. Hannah Durkin and her new book, Survivors. Dr. Hannah Durkin is a historian specialising in transatlantic slavery and African diasporic art and culture. She holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Nottingham and a postgraduate diploma in journalism from Leeds Trinity University. She has taught at Nottingham and Newcastle Universities and recently served as a guest researcher at Linnaeus University in Sweden. She is an advisor to the History Museum of Mobile, which is working to memorialise the Clotilda survivors and was a keynote speaker at Africa Town's 2021 Spirit of Our Ancestors Festival, founded by the Clotilda Descendants Association. And both of those things will make a bit more sense when we talk about the book that Anna has written, which is Survivors, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the Atlantic Slave Trade. Hannah, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Tell us then, first of all, how you ended up in your field of study, I guess. Yeah, so I was working on a slightly separate project. So I was working on the uh, the films, I was working really as a film scholar, um, the films of a writer, an African-American writer named Zora Neale Hurston. And she was perhaps the earliest professional black woman filmmaker. And she was um, an ethnographic filmmaker. So she was filming black communities in the US South. And so I was working on her work. I was trying to identify the people in her films. Now, one of the people she filmed was a man named Kujo Lewis of Kazula, who was believed to be the last survivor of the transatlantic slave trade. So he was a survivor of this slave ship that I'm writing about in my book. But I wanted to try to identify the other people in the films. So I was looking at this posthumously published book of hers and noticed that she'd named another one of the Clotilda survivors. And I realised as I was continuing to research, this woman that she named had actually outlived Kujo Lewis, or Kazula. So I kept trying to research um, more into this, this woman's stories, try to tell her story too. And that spiralled into an attempt to tell the story of as many of the Clotilda survivors as possible. So this story takes place in 1860, um, so just before, literally right before the Civil War starts. So remind us of what the legal status of slavery is, the trade in slaves right across the Atlantic. Yes, yeah, so the British Empire outlaws its slave trade in 1807. And I say that, but in the century before, it's the dominant um, slave trading empire. So it actually traffics about 3 million people um, in the century before it ends its slave trade. The United States ends its slave trade in 1808. They legally ended the trade anyway. And it declares the slave trade piracy in 1820, which means that it's um, basically it's an act that, that you can be executed for. But that doesn't stop other empires from continuing the trade, and it doesn't stop illegal activities when those other empires... You know, the transatlantic slave trade is really centred on Brazil and Cuba in the 19th century, and about a quarter of all African people who were sent across the Atlantic are sent after 1808, so after it's been declared illegal. That's a, a quarter of all the Africans sent across the Atlantic. So knowing that this expedition, the Clotilda expedition, it is illegal, but clearly people are still willing to take the risk to do it. The rewards are great. So who are the men behind this conspiracy and yeah, what's in it for them? 
Yeah, so the men involved in the conspiracy, the men who lead the conspiracy, I mean, it's mostly led by a man named Timothy Mayer and his, his two brothers, Burns and James Mayer. And the man who um, captains the Clotilda is a man, is a Canadian man named William Foster. Timothy Mayer takes the lead in organising it. But some of the, the men involved in the conspiracy are quite significant figures in the Confederacy, or they become quite significant figures in the Confederacy. In fact, the Clotilda for a long time was rumoured to have been sparked by a bet just before 1860. I was a bit surprised, I was really surprised actually to find when I was researching that bet that I there's, there's a handwritten note in the Nabeel Public Library that names people who were witness to the bet. And there was just enough evidence for me to be able to identify one of those people who was this northern, basically northern businessman who was in the South to distribute um, medicine, basically. And that man is um, a man named Frederick Ayer. And he he's one of his business partners. He has only two major clients in Alabama. And one of those two men is a man named Benjamin Rush Jones. And Benjamin Rush Jones is very good friends with, um, in fact, he founds a church alongside, really, a man named William Lowndes Yancey. And William Lowndes Yancey is known as the orator of secession, or the prince of the fiery tools, with these radical extremists who are the men who lead the nation to war. William Lowndes Yancey um, spits the Democratic Party in 1860, just as the Clotilda is sailing across the Atlantic. He basically leads a walkout of Southern Democrats. And what happens is the Democratic Party, which is not the Democratic Party we know today, um, what he does is he leads a walkout of Southern Democrats who feel that the party as a whole isn't supporting slavery strong enough. And what that does is it splits the Democratic Party in two, which means that there's now a Southern Democratic Party versus the Democratic Party in the 1860 election, which basically means that Abraham Lincoln, the Republican, the party that's opposed to the expansion of slavery, wins the election. And because Abraham Lincoln is now president, um, Southerners then secede from the Union. So in short, William Lowndes Yancey is a leading figure actually leading the nation to war, and he's very closely associated with the Clotilda conspirators. So let's talk about where they sail to and why they're, but also how, because again, this is an illegal operation, so the ship has to look like it's not going to collect enslaved people. Yeah, so the ship is disguised, of course. In fact, the crew of the ship don't appear to have been aware until they're halfway across the Atlantic that they're actually part of an illegal slave trading operation. But of course, by that point, they're powerless really to rebel against that or to to get out of this operation because they're halfway across the Atlantic. But the Clotilda sails to um, Weida in Benin, which is the you know the, the major about a million people are trafficked from Weida across the Atlantic. So it's a, a really major port in the transatlantic slave trade. And it's controlled by the Dahomey Empire, which is one of the last great surviving West African empires in the 19th century. And the captives are people from a neighbouring community in present-day Nigeria. So they're all from, as far as I can tell, they're all from a town in present-day Oyo State, Nigeria. You describe at the very beginning of the book the raid on this town, um, a, a town then called Tarka. I mean, it's an incredibly upsetting and vivid account of it. And most surprising, perhaps, is that the um, the attack is led by women soldiers. Tell us something about this raid. Yeah, so the raid, it's a dawn raid. So most people are asleep when it happens, so nobody's expecting it. So there's no time for people to defend themselves. And the elders are mostly killed in the raid, and the children, the young people, are taken captive. The women warriors are leading it. The Dahomey Empire is, it has both men and women warriors. 
it develops this probably because of partly due to actually the horses won't survive on the coast. So the town that is attacked was once part of the Oyo Empire, which was a great rival to the Homi Empire. And that was the military was um, basically a cavalry. So a horse, um, basically the soldiers rode horses. Now the, the Homi Empire on the coast, because of the Tetsi fly, couldn't, horses couldn't survive on the coast. So that might be one reason why they turned to women soldiers. But it also might be because of the attrition of men due to the slave trade. So there are fewer, there are basically fewer men to fight. So it's something that develops certainly from the 18th century onwards. The idea that, I mean, the, there are people that, you know, defend Britain's part in slavery or try to claim that it wasn't that bad or it's a long time ago and all of that. And one of the things that they will often say is that Africans took a very active part in the slave trade. Um, and we can see that here, that the Dahomey and its king are basically, the, the enslaved people are prisoners of war, the spoils of war. And so to what extent is that situation exploited by, not just at this point, because we are literally here right at the, you know, the very end, but over the years, how has this situation been exploited by the white slave traders? Yeah, I mean, basically what happens with the transatlantic slave trade is that European European slave trading, slave trading on the continent, basically creates um, demographic breakdown and social instability. And so what happens is societies fracture and you get these military states that uh, become dependent on warfare rather than agriculture as their, as part of their economy, sort of central to their economy. And what that means is they're, they're having to fight against one another. It becomes almost a dog-eat-dog situation in which they're having to participate in the slave trade to prevent their own people from becoming enslaved and sold overseas themselves. So it's a horrible sort of situation that Europeans really create. And it becomes a situation in which yeah, it's a dog-eat-dog world, basically, you either take the lead and in this um, barbaric practice or you um, sold overseas yourself. So who are these captives? Who are the people that have been captured in this raid? So there are 110 people who were forced aboard the Clotilda Half of them are male captives, half of them are female captives. Most of them are children or very young people. The youngest, as far as I can tell, was a two-year-old girl. So they're, they're very, very young people, and they're mostly all from the same town, apart from one, one captive who's actually, um, who's actually from the Dahomey Empire. So he's, a, he's actually a member of the nobility for some reason. The, the Dahomey man who sells the Clotilda captives decides to sell him as well. It gives him away almost as a gift to this the Clotilda's captain, William Foster. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast 
and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dr. Hannah Durkin and we're talking about her new book, Survivors, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the Atlantic Slave Trade. And Hannah, in the first half, we've been talking about, you know, slavery quite in general terms. And this is a book that explicitly looks at the individual stories of the people that were on this boat. So in the second half, we're going to to look at some of these individuals and what happens to them. But just staying generally for the, the first couple of minutes, the crossing across the Atlantic, the middle, the famous Middle Passage, tell us what that would have been like for the captives of the Clotilda. Well, it lasted for 45 days. So this, we're talking about, well, we're talking a month and a half, about six and a half weeks, if my maths is right. So a horrendously long time. And the captors aren't allowed out of the hold for the first 13 days. So they're trapped in this very, very confined space. The most recent archaeological evidence, because the Clotilda was identified in Alabama in the, the wreck of it um, about four years ago. So we know from archaeological evidence that they were placed on stacked planks probably all had about less than six feet of space. So tiny confined spaces. The uh, boys and men were almost certainly chained. It's not clear if the girls were. That wasn't standard practice, really. But there's a handwritten note, again, in the Mobile Public Library that suggests that one 16-year-old girl died just two days into the voyage. Other survivors record witnessing family members being thrown overboard. So it's likely it's likely about seven died. And of course, they're facing all kinds of horrible diseases. This is horribly poorly ventilated space, and they're given hardly any food and water. And obviously, their muscles are wasting away. It's horrendous. So what happens immediately on there, on the arrival of the Clotilda back in the US, again, bearing in mind that um, the pirate status of, of this ship... Yes. So what happens is the um, there are lookouts looking for the people involved in the conspiracy, and they manage to get word to um, Timothy Mayer, the head of this crime, to yeah, manage to get word to him, telling him that the Clotilda has arrived, and he basically manages with with help to sneak the Clotilda up the up the Mobile River and dispose of it there. It's set alight, but I say that, but the the wreck of the Clotilda was visible for decades after, with low tide, was visible in the water decades after. So the crime is a, a lot, more than a bit, it's a lot of an open secret. 
And what happens to the captives that they are then moved around, they're taken first to an estate, um, and the slave's estate just north of Mobile, and then they're moved further up again. And when they when they reach um, Burns Mayer's estate, the brother of Timothy Mayer, they're then sold and separated. Because this is family members who have been separated from one another, one another in many cases. And they're sent, they're spread, basically sent to different places in Alabama. So let's look at some of the the individual people then and, and what happened to them then and what happens to them subsequently over the years. Some of these people live in way into the 20th century. So Kostula, you've mentioned already. Tell us something about him. Yes, yeah, so he was about 19 years old when he was kidnapped. And he lived until July 1935, so well into his 90s. And he he was part of a community in Mobile. So this community... This group of survivors, some of whom were enslaved by the, the Mayer brothers, they actually established their own community, their own town, which they named African Town, and this becomes a thriving community. I mean, of course, they first tried desperately to go home. They save up money, they plead with their former enslavers to help them go home, but of course, that, that never happens. But basically, Kazula or Kujo Lewis becomes this um, because he lives longer than all of the other mobile survivors. He becomes a sort of um, a minor celebrity at the end of his life. He's interviewed by the writer Zora Hurston, who films footage of him. And she writes a, it's never published in her lifetime, but she writes a book, a manuscript. It's basically an oral account of his experiences. So his, his voice, his, his life story is really quite well documented, unusually well documented for a middle passage spy. And so tell us something about Matilda, who was the, um, the two year old girl. Um, and actually, just as an aside on this, because there's a difference here between Kosula, maybe, and Matilda, let's talk about these names. You talk at the very beginning of the book about the naming convention, because Matilda is clearly not an Oyu name. No, absolutely not. And it was difficult. So so many cases, the West African names of the Matilda survivors, they weren't recorded. So it's impossible to know to know what they were, of course. So in those cases, where, where there's doubt or where... Perhaps the spellings are a little bit unclear. Um, I had to make lots of decisions, really, in terms of whether to, how to name them, basically. So Matilda was a name given to this two-year-old girl when she, when she arrived in the United States. And she was kidnapped with her mother and three sisters. Her two brothers were left on the West African coast. And her, two of her three sisters were sold away from her when the group landed in Alabama. So she never saw those sisters again so her family becomes her mother her sister and herself and her mother is in fact forced to pair forcibly paired with another clitilda survivor so she's basically forced to become the wife quote-unquote wife of this other clitilda survivor and they become a family unit and that seems to be in a practice with other clitilda survivors as well where captives are forced to pair with one another to to basically create more enslaved children which speaks the, the horrible abuses that were going on during, well, during slavery more broadly, but certainly, certainly in Alabama in the mid-19th century. But Matilda McCrea is only about seven years old when she's freed from, nominally freed from slavery. So in 1865, all of the Matilda survivors endure about five years of enslavement. But Matilda McCrea, yeah, it's, it's, it's nominal freedom. So she's still forced to work in the cotton fields. Um, she has her first child when she's about 13 or 14. And the father of that child is the son of a former enslaver and so she's always 
She's always trapped in the cotton fields of central Alabama, but she does what's incredibly inspiring and just amazing about Miss Hilda McCreer is that she actually, near the end of her life, in December 1931, she actually goes to meet Kazula. She somehow manages to travel. So she is living near Selma in central Alabama, which is about 150 miles away from Mobile. But somehow she manages to travel down with obviously no, no car or anything like that to visit Kazula and to see the site of the Clotilda's landing. And she's so, this event has such a big impression on her. She actually decides at the end of that month to march from her home about 50 miles outside Selma to Selma, to Dallas County Courthouse in Selma, to basically ask for reparations for her kidnap and enslavement. So she's, um, yeah, just incredible. But of course, the answer is no. The white judge who, who she encounters, of course, says, says there's no money for you. And she's sent home. And of course, this is the height of the Great Depression. But what's striking about that is that she, that same courthouse is basically the, a key scene in the battle for voting rights in the, just over 30 years later. So this is where campaigners gather at the start of the Selma to Montgomery marches. And the Selma to Montgomery marches lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which is one of the key pieces of civil rights legislation in the 1960s. These campaigners are going to the courthouse to demand to register to vote. And what's also striking about that is the chair of the Board of Registrars, a man named Victor Atkins, also happened to have been Matilda McCreer's landlord for decades. Before that, it was his father, and before that, it was his father-in-law. So there are these all kinds of striking connections between the clitoral survivors and, and the civil rights campaign. You've already mentioned the, the founding of the area known as African Town, or later, latterly Africa Town. And this is uh, significant in the, in the life of another one of the survivors. I wanted you to talk about who is Gumpa. Tell us something who he was. Yeah, so Gumpa was the, um, was the Dahomean uh, nobleman, so, or rather fond nobleman to use the correct ethnic, um, you know, the ethnic group that he was part of. So Gumpa was a young man who, for some reason, and probably because the man selling the Clotilda captive to William Foster, the Clotilda captain, wanted to present a gift to William Foster, a gift of his own, one of his own people. And so he is presented to William Foster as a gift and Foster board the Clotilda with the other captain. So, of course, got a completely different ethnic group from him. But what's striking about him, partly probably because he was slightly older than most of the others, possibly the oldest man, when the Clotilda captives finally secure their freedom, finally establish, manage to establish Africa Town, they appoint a leader. So they appoint two judges and a leader. And the man they appoint as their leader is Gumper. So he becomes the head of Africa Town, or African Town at that time. And he lives until the early 20th century. So he horribly, he's, he's killed by a train, actually, in the, in the early 20th century. And he has very few possessions at the end of his life. He's quite a poor man. Um, but his, his chimney, chimney that he built, is pretty much the only surviving structure built by the African community that survives in Africa town today. So it's the only thing you can really see, apart from the, some surviving graves that show the presence of the community in, or just north of Mobile. And just one more survivor then. Tell us something about Dinah, who I wanted to talk about because of her connection to another thing you talk about in the book, which is a place called G's Bend, and it's a tradition of quilting. Yes. Yeah, so, for, well, certainly since, so since the beginning of the 21st century, there's been quite a lot of um, 
artistic interest in Peace Bend for its um, for its unusual quilting tradition, which had been like likened to West African strip weaving, which is where where basically where strips of cloth are woven together into a single fabric. It's a community that's really its quilting traditions are marked by you know sort of bright colours, abstract shapes. Uh, they're really striking idiosyncratic patterns and. Art historians at the turn of the 21st century speculated that there might be a connection to the Clotilda because one of the women quilts was a, a woman named Onzia Petway. She claimed that her great-grandmother was a Clotilda survivor. That her great-grandmother, a woman named Dinah Miller, an African woman who had been brought to Mobile Bay when she was about 13 years old with her brother and mother. So I found during the course of this research, that quite a few Clotilda survivors were sent to Dallas County and Wilcox County, which is where Peace Bend is. And what I found was that, yeah, quite a big community just in and around Peace Bend and the neighbouring community of Rehoboth. So quite a few Clotilda survivors were sent there. In fact, two of them somehow managed to find their way to Africa Town in the early 1880s, which sort of proved that connection. Matilda McCrea lived really close to Peace Bend as well. But Dinah was, um, according to her great-granddaughter Alonzio's account, which matches actually census records and actually a, a local history book that names an African woman named Dinah who's living in this area, matched up perfectly in terms of the age and in terms of the connection with, um, with the other Clotilda survivors nearby. Um, but Dinah Miller lived until 1933, and very sadly she dies the height of this um, period in Cheese Bend. And Cheese Bend is a thriving community, just like Africa Town is. It's a black majority community. It has you know, one white family in the early 20th century, but otherwise it's an African-American community. But at the height of the Great Depression, their possessions are basically stripped away from them and they, they have almost nothing and they're living in a starvation situation. And that's around the time that, that Dinah Miller dies. But yeah, she was, um, she was one of the last Clotilda survivors. And just to finish off, then, how is the um, the city of Mobile? You said that you've um, I mentioned in the introduction that you've you've worked with the History Museum there. So how are they attempting to commemorate these survivors? Yes, yeah, so they've established a heritage house, which is basically creates some is an exhibition space for Africa Town. I'll actually be visiting this space very very shortly, so I'm very excited. And that opened in July last year, and they've created a, a memorial that tries to name as many of the Clotilda survivors as possible using their West African names where possible. So helping to to add to the, the names on the current list. So um, hopefully it'll have uh, it'll be quite a comprehensive list of the survivors' names at the moment. And when they when the, the memorial went up they they left some blank a lot of blank spaces. So at the moment there are probably only about thirty or so people on that list. But now my book is coming out, there'll be closer to hundred names. So I've been talking to Hannah Durkin. We've been talking about her new book, Survivors, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the Atlantic Slave Trade, which is out now in the UK from William Collins. Hannah, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.